and giving enough freedom to the crew to make decisions and critical decisions without jeopardizing overall uh, mission. For space systems, it's always important. Oh, it's one of the major constraints for us. We need to launch everything from Earth. Repairing and self-repairing structures, I think that is really, really important. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and in a moment you'll hear from our hosts, Luke Shabro and Rachel Melling. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the evolution of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. Follow us on social media at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today our hosts are talking with Dr. Olga Bonova, Director of the Space Architecture Program at the University of Houston. They'll talk with Dr. Bonova about designing vehicles and habitats for space, how we can use austere environments here on Earth as proving grounds, and what these environments can teach the U.S. Army. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or the Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Dr. Bonova, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Yes, we are so excited to have you. Um, so to start it off, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and your research focus? I am a director of the Space Architecture, Master of Science in Space Architecture program at the College of Engineering of the University of Houston. And uh, also it's Space Architecture Center. It's called Sasakawa International Center for Space Architecture. Uh, and uh, it was established quite some time ago, but uh, in 2014, the center was um, uh, moved administratively from architecture to engineering, and now we are uh, with engineering, and it's multidisciplinary program. Uh, so I have students with different backgrounds. Um, so I guess I'm talking more about my students than myself, so my background is also multidisciplinary. Uh, I have architectural background, so I graduated uh, from Moscow uh, a long time ago with architectural degree. Uh, and uh, but also uh, I uh, attend at uh, Master of Science uh, in Space Architecture, of course, at the uh, University of Houston. Later, when I came to Houston to get my master's in architecture, and I didn't know about Space Architecture Center at that time. It was a long time ago. Uh, and sometimes when uh, they didn't have uh, a website even. So I only had to learn it um, physically. So walking and seeing it all. So I was always interested in space. And uh, that was kind of my dream came true when I saw this connection, space and architecture. And later on, uh, I got my uh, PhD from Chalmers University of Technology. And that was from uh, Department of Architecture and Civil Engineering. So uh, that's another connection with engineering. So uh, again, uh, that's uh, my background. And again, I was always interested since even uh, earlier when I was working as an ordinary terrestrial architect uh, in complex systems and complex projects. And that was was fascinating um, for me in architecture because it brings things together and uh, brings uh, all the knowledge about structures, about infrastructure, about humans, uh, about beauty, 
uh, everything all together and it has to be at, at the end functional. So you have to combine it all and figure out how all those things will work together. And that's what me brought to Houston because I thought uh, working on uh, urban scale and uh, high rise structures and stuff where else not, is not in the United States. So that's how I ended up uh, in Houston. Uh, and it was, that was 23 years ago. I think it's really interesting when people come into different fields, uh, almost what I say accidentally. Um, I got into uh, working with the Army and, and Futures uh, was something that I had not planned on, um, but I was always fascinated with technology and the ways in which we fight, so ended up there myself. Uh, so I think that some of, the, some of the best folks like yourself who have had uh, cross-disciplinary, um, really those, those kind of cross-functional teaming type experiences really add a lot. Uh, you know, as we were researching edge technologies, we discovered your work in space architecture. And can you tell us more about the concept of space architecture and some of the types of habitats, systems, uh, vehicles you focus on? Uh, will I get a space condo in the near future that I can live in? <laughs> okay, sure. So space architecture definition is it's designing and building habitable spaces uh, for uh, humans, obviously, uh, for outer space. Uh, and that was uh, uh, defined like that in 2002 when we had uh, International Aerospace Congress, um, Aeronautical Congress in Houston. Uh, and that's the first time when the group of international people, professionals, uh, engineers and architects who worked on different space-related projects got together and we discussed what, what space architecture would be. Again, to me, uh, space architecture is maybe even broader than just designing, uh, let's say, pressurized structures, habitable structures for humans, because uh, that is only part of it. It's, uh, we need to design to the best of our knowledge and to best for our clients or people, to the crew or tourists, if you will, in the future, who will be there, who will be using that place, that space, uh, for sometimes for a long period of time. Uh, that has to be designed as a part of the whole big picture of the whole vehicle or the base, thinking about how we uh, launch it from Earth, how it can be uh, landed if needed, how it can be assembled, if it's in orbit, where it will be assembled. So uh, understanding all these required uh, systems, engineering systems, uh, human support systems, how it can be combined and how that will influence. So each solution influences other solutions. And it's a lot of it is, of course, system engineering, but then we bring human factor in it. So it's even more so because then we need to understand what it comes, what it required to help humans uh, not only barely survive, uh, but also being productive and uh, being satisfied. And uh, of course, being safe is the most important thing. So for, um, for me, space architecture really involves understanding of even mission planning, even though many may disagree with me, but I think it's important to be able to plan the mission. Doesn't mean that it has to be on the, every detail, but thinking about all these elements. An example uh, for something that may seem that is not related to uh, space 
uh, architecture or space habitation, let's say. Uh, we know there is a, a debris problem in low Earth orbit, especially. So for in the International Space Station and for future stations, it will be important to have something that will help to at least divert uh, some debris from hitting uh, solar panels, the station itself. Uh, one of the uh, student projects we had, it was um, designing a laser beam system that will help to divert this uh, little debris uh, from the collision orbit to the station and to deorbit it towards the Earth, you know, towards the burning in the atmosphere or else, right? Uh, so you would think that this system has uh, to be mounted on the uh, outside of the space uh, habitat or, or uh, station, uh, and it has nothing to do with it's robotically uh, operating, and it has nothing to do with humans. But on the other hand, no, it's not because where it will be located, how it will be operated. So concept of operations is very important for us to understand and design for it. Uh, for example, when this uh, system will be uh, uh, in operational mode, it has to be complete silence on the station. Even little movement, even little vibration can affect the accuracy of this uh, deorbiting procedure, right? That means that we need to des design uh, the station itself, inside the station. We need to think about the conops where people will be, how these external elements will be affecting internal structure. That's what I'm very interested in, to thinking and linking all of this together. And again, usually when I talk to students, I say, like, imagine if you, especially, of course, for architects, if with the architectural background, so they may relate to it better, but everybody can relate to that probably. When you design or you think about an apartment in the building or just the building itself, you cannot design it without understanding the surroundings. It doesn't make any sense to trying to design this uh, ideal habitat. It doesn't exist, no matter where it will be located. It's always linked to the surroundings. It links to infrastructure. It links to the fabric of the city and so on. So what will be left behind? Because nothing is forever. Uh, our structures, well, the International uh, Space Station, uh, is about to end its life. Uh, so structures become obsolete for different reasons, or so they can uh, become um, contaminated, or whatever reasons they become uninhabitable. So what will we do with those uh, structures? Yeah, from low Earth orbit, we deorbit it, right? So it burns in the atmosphere, some. But if you go to farther beyond low Earth orbit, if we go to Moon or Mars or elsewhere, what will be happening? We don't want to pollute this with all these structures. We need to think how it can be reused, repurposed first, then reused or recycled, if you will. So designing with that mental approach, whatever this methodology to begin with is important. So I actually have a, a different question for you than our next question, but you were just talking about a lot of the structures that you work on and how they are in orbit in space. Do you ever look at um, structures or technology that are meant for remaining on other planets? Yes, of course. You're talking about uh, human bases and settlements on the moon or Mars. Yes, of course. It's 
That's something that is always exciting for students to work on and for me as well. That's what I'm talking about. Again, on Moon or Mars, uh, there are many issues with uh, make the living there sustainable. How you deal with, uh, how you will be dealing with trash and waste in general. So it's not like you can go outside and dig a hole and put it there in the back, right? So you want to do that. So uh, working on these closed-loop systems, again, minimizing waste and trash. Again, potentially, whatever you use, how you can reuse it, will it be possible to use it for some other purposes, even talking about the waste? Yeah, of course, we probably all remember Martian, right? (laughs) That's what usually comes to Earth. But it's not as simple. I wish it was, right? So you talked a little bit earlier about how you started out um, getting your master's in architecture um, in Moscow, and you started out just in kind of ordinary uh, architecture with an interest in space. And you just talked about the characteristics of the different structures and technology that you would need to have them be functional in space. So how do the characteristics of these systems differ from the architecture that you worked on originally for Earth? On the very critical aspect of it. Because pretty much any mistake and uh, may cause uh, loss of life and loss of the whole structure and loss of not one life, but many the whole crew. So criticality of how well these systems are integrated, how well they can be integrated with uh, humans as well, what they need. So how humans, uh, the crew, uh, how well they will be able to maintain it, uh, interact with their environment as well. So the systems should be easy to not only maintain, but also replace if needed and giving enough freedom to the crew to make decisions and critical decisions without jeopardizing overall uh, mission. Uh, it's interesting balance. And you again, you would think that it's not related to architecture, but it is because it's directly related to concept of operations and the, the freedom uh, for the crew that it can be given within this concept of operations. Uh, and again, recognizing, of course, potential for error and uh, trying to uh, think about how it can be prevented or how the crew can respond. We can respond to unpredicted unpre- uh, situations faster and with some uh, unusual solutions. But uh, so the humans are quite resourceful and uh, AI is great, but AI is based on a lot of data and based on the faults and uh, errors, right? So in some situations, it won't be helpful, but humans can. I, I think that's really interesting because that brings a good segue to the next question I had, which really is kind of about how do you conduct testing and, and do research for these? Because you're looking at systems, whether it be orbital, outer space, uh, or on extraterrestrial planets, very different environments. And you could be looking at something that, um, as you noted, you know, it, it might not be an issue uh, structurally um, in uh, within our atmosphere and could be no problem. But when you get to the orbital stage or a place that uh, is experiencing zero uh, gravity or maybe uh, much higher gravity than, than what we're uh, experiencing on Earth, how do you test that 
on earth um, to be able to do that because I know it can be extremely difficult to emulate those conditions. Do you look for austere environments here on earth or is it a scientific calculation to try and figure out how it will hold up in those environments? Yes, um, that's definitely a very important question and it's a very important uh, stage of development of any uh, systems and habitable systems. There are many analogs uh, that exist uh, on Earth in different countries, in different levels. Most of them are non-pressurized structures, so they are not airtight. And uh, research that is done there is related to, again, some degree to concept of operations and its own uh, isolation and confined environment. And the crew stays for a certain time. Uh, for a long time, uh, sometimes uh, conducting experiments. Uh, they also have some EVA uh, facilities usually, so they can go on EVAs. But of course, we cannot trick their mind that it's somewhere else. They know it's on Earth. And in some uh, analog facilities, they are located in safe environment uh, inside these um, research institutions and stuff like that. Uh, there are also pressurized structures or uh, airtight structures. One of them is very well known to foot diameter chamber at Johnson Space Center, Hestia, that was built a long time ago uh, during Apollo missions. And many different uh, analog missions uh, ran over there for different reasons. That's definitely good. So this kind of stuff that, yes, we can test uh, even maybe some of the systems, life support systems in airtight analog facilities. We can test uh, crew cohesiveness and some operations and psychological effects of isolation and confined, isolated and confined environment uh, in those uh, analog facilities. Of course, one of these best ones is uh, of the Key West uh, and it's Nemur program in Aquarius in Florida. It's uh, NASA uh, operated. But the thing is, again, yes, uh, we still uh, cannot, uh, first of all, we cannot turn off the gravity. <laughs> and uh, we try to trick our uh, subjects that as much as we want. So here comes this VR, virtual reality. And uh, at our lab, uh, we just built uh, also virtual reality little lab, but it's uh, extended reality. So what it means is that combining uh, low fidelity mockups with virtual habitat design. Uh, so what really interested how the crew will operate inside. So that's what how you evaluate the design. It's not just putting your goggles on and experiencing, oh, it's good, looks good, how the space is, it's important. But we want to interact with the environment. We want the subjects to perform certain tasks and see how well the environment served to do this task. So ideally, it would be at least two crew members. Ideally, if we have more rooms or more capabilities, that can be if the crew of four it has to be all four, Crew six, it has to be all six when needed. <clears throat> and to test how they operate with it. So if the, there is a wall, so you don't walk through the wall, so it has to be, you know, you bump over it. If there is something that you need to, for example, offload, and uh, you have a CTB, right? So you 
take it and you bring it and you feel it. Of course, still uh, for the moon facility, there will be gravity, but it's different gravity. That is difficult to simulate. For microgravity conditions, we simulated, we have a little gantry crane, so we suspend the person so to do something. So that may help a little bit. to It actually does a little bit to your brain, the feeling. So you do feel this orientation is different. That's what we do on Earth. Of course, flying it, that's completely different story. Uh, we want to fly. And uh, this parabolic flight, it gives you only 30 seconds of uh, weightlessness. That's not enough to test the whole, let's say, space inside the habitat. You can test certain uh, procedure, but not enough for the whole design. So shifting a little bit, when we are looking to develop new uh, military technology, I think two of the biggest characteristics that we look at are agility and and its its toughness. So is this thing able to uh, be agile on the battlefield and does it is it tough enough to, you know, withstand those environments? I'm sure that's probably two things that you are um, you look at, too, when you're looking at this technology for space. Is it agile and can it withstand the harsh environments of space? And so can you talk to us a little bit about that, those two things specifically? And do you see any um, use for this kind of technology or ways that this kind of technology or these characteristics can be useful um, on the battlefield or in in military use? Sure. And of course, mostly it's uh, external uh, surface uh, structures and systems. Talking about rovers, any infrastructure development on moon, on Mars, it's even farther the road. But let's talk about the moon. It will require a lot of new development of new robotic systems. Again, uh, they will be dealing uh, not only with less uh, gravity conditions, which makes it uh, tougher at some point, because uh, but it's also with different conditions on the surface. Regolith is very brutal to these structures, so they have to be very robust. We need to also think how to protect the structures from that dust. On Earth, uh, in, the, in the harshest environments, it's not that brutal. I'm talking about the soil itself. Uh, but still, uh, protecting structures uh, from being damaged by just anything that's on the surface is important. So that's definitely uh, something. And I think there are many reciprocities between that. So some of this um, uh, testing for the Moon or Mars of rovers, they were done on Earth, let's say, in um, in the mud conditions, so kind of where the traction is reduced because of these conditions. So to how to test uh, the systems for less uh, gravity uh, using these conditions on Earth. So that will be vice versa. And of course, uh, if uh, system uh, or robotic systems or uh, rover system and rover, of course, consists of many systems, right? So it's uh, wheels, it's suspension, and uh, also uh, protect the cargo on it. If there is a cargo, if there are astronauts on it, you need to protect astronauts, uh, even non-pressurized. I'm talking about non-pressurized rovers. Uh, so all of that can be applied on Earth and will be useful, of course, for these systems. Another stuff is for deployment. For space systems, it's always important. Oh, it's one of the major constraints for us. 
We need to launch everything from Earth. So we want systems to be light and they have to fit in the payload shroud. For any deployments on Earth, it has to be better light, even though it's not such a big deal, uh, of course, uh, for military deployments, but still light better because you can put more stuff. And it has to be uh, designed or has to fit in the payload shroud. When we worked on a project for uh, Greenland Summit Station, everything has to be had to be designed that will fit uh, LC-130 because that was the only transportation means that could deliver stuff to the summit in Greenland. So very similar to what we have to, to deal with when we design for space. Uh, also, how it can be uh, offloading situations, it has to be offloaded faster. If it's robotically, it can be offloaded. It's even better. Assembly operations faster and safer is better. So pretty much, again, starting from designing the structure itself, but also looking at this, again, concept of operations. I sound like a broken record, but it is. So it's very much related to that, the whole thinking about the whole process. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, Ozan Verall, who had uh, worked at NASA on the uh, Mars rovers, had previously talked about, uh, he has a book called Think Like a Rocket Scientist and always links back to the first principles of what are you trying to accomplish with the mission. And I think that approach uh, lends itself to not making mistakes of how we typically think about um, just iteratively designing and operating things. Um, so I don't think you're a broken record at all. I think that exactly fits what uh, how, how we should be looking at this. With the International Space Station, obviously we've seen previous cooperation before between nations. Uh, what kind of international cooperation are you seeing in the field now? With International Space Station, it's pretty much the same. There are still uh, operating the same uh, group of countries. So uh, there are still people from Roscosmos uh, Mission Control are in Houston and vice versa from Houston and Mission Control in Moscow because they have to operate the station. They tried as hard as possible to cooperate and make it uh, still livable. And uh, so far, it's okay. Definitely cooperation has to, if we want to succeed in talking about cooperation is important. Some competition will be happening on the level of who designed better technology, and that is fine. As far as it goes to this main goal, to explore and make it happen. That's what was happening with the International Space Station. Everybody wanted it to succeed. It was still some competition and they still was good. Oh, our system is better and we come up with this. It's fine uh, to be proud of what you designed. It's absolutely fine. But the thing is the major thing, everybody wanted it to be successful. And again, everybody wants the crew to survive and come back safe. And I think that will be the same thing for uh, for lunar exploration. It's, it has to be the same thing for any exploration. By the way, on Earth, there are so many unexplored uh, and unknowns uh, still and talking about the ocean, right? So maybe ocean is actually even harsher environment than low Earth orbit right now. So we saw what happened uh, just uh, this last summer when... Somebody decided uh, they can do it without really testing it well enough. So the thing is, again, being open to the cooperation, and it can be a different level. So I really believe in this commercial space flight 
because at that point it will be driven not only to get some profit out of it, but also the same thing. So make it happening, make it happening. And people, engineers, they always uh, find a way how to talk to each other. They share the same passion. You have the same passion, positive, creative passion. It's all good. <laughs> Absolutely. And we've seen really the the growth of uh, from the initial um, of course, U.S. and then uh, at the time Soviet Union and then uh, China and, and India and other major nations, major powers joining as spacefaring nations. But we've actually seen an explosion in the last you know decade plus of other nations in Africa, the Middle East, even South America um, of participating as spacefaring nations, even if it's, you know, just launching satellite um, on on satellite constellations. Um, have you seen any kind of, I guess I would say, non-traditional or not the major powers like uh, the United States and Russia in beyond the International Space Station, just any of these orbital or outer space or then um, potentially um, the moon and Mars? Have you seen other nations um, from different continents uh, participating in, in new ways at all? Uh, I would say if you look at these activities that is happening with the development of spaceports around the Earth, you will see how many of them new. So uh, I actually lost count how many now in the United States. I know the spaceport uh, in Houston, I think it was 11th, but that was in 2015. So more proposed uh, and approved by uh, FAA now. Uh, other ones uh, talking about countries uh, like Sweden and Norway, they have their proposals and also approved uh, uh, developing spaceports. Of course, it all depends uh, where they're located, so where you can launch at different orbits and different types of uh, launch systems. South Korea, um, they have their astronaut um, flown to the International Space Station, but since then, um, they don't have anybody else uh, joining this human space flight. Uh, but now I think they're also looking more into it. And uh, South Korea had quite a few successes recently. They were struggling, but uh, uh, they had few launches, successful launches. So, again, politics is part of it as well, especially as we're talking about uh, South Korea uh, and Asia uh, in, in general. So there is geopolitics is very important uh, for the development as well. So um, yes, more stuff is happening in, in Australia too. So uh, I don't know if uh, you know, you may, <laughs> that uh, Australia was part of the Apollo program. So it was a tracking right? Uh, so, uh, station there in Australia. Uh, but since then, for a long period of time, uh, space wasn't considered as um, one of these countries not even priorities, but uh, any of these uh, uh, investments. But recently, finally, they got their uh, space agency, and now they're growing, and more and more activities are happening in the Australia. So there are many things are happening around the world. So like we talked about, we've really seen, you know, the the importance and the focus of the space environment and space technology really boom within the last couple of years. Um, and 
so I think that leads into our one of our last main questions for you. Um, how do you see the field of space architecture and the technology that you're developing evolving within the next five, 10 years? In relation to major concerns and critical aspects of uh, making our presence in space on moon sustainable, and that is uh, related to life support systems. Uh, it's uh, so development closed loop and more effective life support systems. They are pretty effective right now, so recycling systems, but we need it better. Uh, new um, food supply there for the crew. And uh, we're also talking about we have all those uh, sci-fi with huge greenhouses, but that is a very complicated system. So that needs to be also developed and new technologies have to be developed for that, for providing uh, nutrition for the crew through long period of times. So without the food being, you know, losing its nutrition quality. And power sources, uh, again. So power supply, without power, we cannot do anything. For the moon, again, everything related to institute resource utilization, which also, in general, will require a lot of power. Uh, so new power systems and more efficient power systems, talking about nuclear. I like nuclear power, so I think it's the way, it's the way we should go. And again, we're talking about space uh, exploration and space architecture, space habitation. Uh, new, if we go, if we want to go farther and faster and uh, have more people going uh, to space, need to provide better transportation systems. Better, I'm talking about more efficient. Uh, so it also will require different uh, propulsion systems. And it's a lot is happening on that side. That technology is finally is, uh, looking more on this uh, nuclear thermal, nuclear solar, and all of that. Uh, will be uh, will be happening, and uh, it's on the way. So I that I think will be developed at this level that we can go to Mars faster, sometime soon, <laughs> hopefully. So that brings me to my kind of wild card question, uh, which we won't hold you to this, but I am curious: when would you think uh, of a date? When do you think colony on the moon would be possible? And then Mars? That is a tricky question, of course. <laughs> uh, I'm not a space agency. <laughs> and I'm not a multi-billionaire. Maybe that I would be able to <laughs> to tell you, or like at least hopefully to tell you, because if I knew how much I could invest and when. <laughs> but uh, uh, with lunar system, I, uh, I think Artemis will provide, and usually it happens, some delays will be happening, but Artemis uh, program will provide these capabilities uh, maybe in uh, 30s, 2030s, and it should be already. Uh, they're, again, talking about sustainable when the crew will be not just 30 missions like it was Apollo, but uh, already developing and leaving something that will continue building up upon. With Mars, that is, um, I wouldn't, wouldn't give you the date. Or I can give you any date because it will be beyond our <laughs> lifespan. Exactly. That's that's a great part about working in futures. If you're wrong, people probably won't remember uh, by the time it gets there. 
Uh, no, that's, that's excellent. And I wanted to ask, um, you know, we, uh, Rachel asked about in the next 10 years, where do you see the technology evolving? I'm curious about the, the history of it some in that you've worked in this for several years now. How, how have you seen it grow, the field of space architecture grow over that time period? Um, you know, even looking back when, when we do look back at those Apollo missions, we were still very much planning everything with calculators and um, without without the assistance of a lot of the computing power and everything else we have right now. Uh, wh- what do you feel like are some of the major factors or technological advancements um, that have really helped your field? Uh, material science and new, better materials, and that's related also to development of um, uh, radiation protections for the crew. Uh, of course, we're always talking about protecting the whole habitat. Again, it's difficult using regular 3D printing as one of these technologies, but again, that requires a lot of power, a lot of heavy equipment, and that's again back to the whole thing, how you launch, land, deploy, how they will be, the systems will be working autonomously. There are many, many things that may break, so it has to be tested. Hopefully, it will be a big breakthrough in 10 years. And the major thing will be the breakthrough will, at least some, the experiment will be deployed on the surface of the moon, and it started testing this technology. So testing is the critical uh, element. So how we can use, uh, then it will be helpful. We can use local materials for many things. For space architecture, habitation of humans uh, on moon, earth, beyond earth, and our extreme conditions on earth, Back to the same thing, so how uh, the self-deployable structures can be built better and be more robust, repairing, self-repairing structures. I think that is really, really important. We're talking about inflatables in space that can have sensors and have some built-in sensors with capabilities of... uh, uh, repairing, let's say, the holes that from micrometeoroid or micro uh, debris in orbit. And the same thing uh, on Earth, uh, the same thing can be used as well. So definitely this so more robust structures in this uh, from the perspective of how it can repair itself, how, how you can, is there uh, easy to replace something or maintain it in an easier way, so deploy and uh, again, then pack and go. So this kind of structure. So I think it's material science. All right, Dr. Vanova, this this conversation has been really, really insightful for, I think, both of us um, to really talk about the the connectedness between uh, space technology and military technology and how those can overlap. A lot of the conditions may be uh, pretty similar. So it's really nice to kind of get to talk to a space architect and really um, learn about those things firsthand and how we can really use each other. So now that we're done with our our main questions, I want to move into our rapid fire questions. Um, These are questions that we we ask all of our guests and it just shows our our listeners a little bit more about you and what what you're thinking about. 
Um, so our first question is what what is a trend or technology that keeps you up at night? So kind of what scares you? You know, I, I do have this uh, uh, night dream sometimes that I'm on the moon or Mars or somewhere else. So, and uh, so to me, uh, what scared me because it's like, oh, oh, boy, I'm here, but I'm not trained. <laughs> I didn't have enough. So how did I like how I will perform? And this, I didn't know that. And I have uh, uh, well, she was our director at some point, and we have friends. I can say that uh, astronaut Bonnie Dunbar. And in one of the dreams, I told her about that <laughs> that, uh, that I am signed to a mission to to the moon, and I'm talking to her it's like Bonnie, but I don't know anything. How can I go? Like I'm not trained. <laughs> I need to be better trained for that. So maybe that's what is scares me at night. That's fair. That would definitely scare me too. Being in a situation I'm not prepared for, <laughs> that would be terrifying. Um, so our second question, what's something about you that most people might not know? I, I don't know. Maybe that's, uh, I, uh, I would go to space, <laughs> but I would prefer to have some training <laughs> and I probably would go even to Mars. That's fair. You know, see the technology that you're developing in action firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> that works. If you design it, it's, uh, you have to be uh, certain that it's uh, survivable. So it's, you have to test it on yourself, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And our last question, what is your favorite movie? Oh, yeah. That's, I have many. And uh, <laughs> there is a movie that is all Soviet movie. And it's kind of comedy, but it's kind of sci-fi comedy. And it's called Kinzadza. And there are so many, um, so many things that you can you see parallels what is happening with society and everything. So it's quite interesting. So this has been just such a fascinating conversation. And we really appreciate your unique perspective and your sharing uh, time with us. And I look forward to working out my lease for a moon colony uh, apartment in the near future. Um, but really, really appreciate the time. Uh, where can people follow you or follow your work at? Well, uh, I have website, of course, our center website. Uh, I uh, don't update it very regularly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we have time. Uh, but periodically put it new stuff in there. And uh, well, of course, I have LinkedIn. Uh, well, in general, I'm not very active on uh, social media in, in general. But we do have, uh, but my researcher, so he's actually more active. So we have Facebook page for SIXA, uh, Sasakawa International Center for Space Architecture and uh, on uh, ResearchGate. Perfect. We'll, uh, we'll get the links for those to be able to provide to the audience so they can at least uh, check that out and, and get a un further understanding of the work and really appreciate it. So thank you again for the time and thank you for coming on. Okay, thank you guys and bye-bye. Uh, Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Olga Bonova. You can keep up to date with all things MadSci by following us on social media at ArmyMadSci or visiting the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.